Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of Three Things That Matter this week. My name is Chi Sang. I run a tech venture firm called M1720, where we focus on U.S. technology companies at the seed and A stages. Summer is over. What does that mean for investors? In this episode, we'll discuss how investors are positioned and what they're really focused on. The IPO market is about to get a big test with three big technology IPOs in the next couple of weeks. Arm, Instacart, and Clavio, all well-established names, profitable, and their customers are even buying into the IPM. So if successful, those will mark a very big turn for the markets, especially in technology and venture capital. India is in a sweet spot. The country landed its rover in the southern side of the moon. It's being courted by the U.S. while at the same time buying oil from Russia. Does it need to choose a side, even though the country is clearly navigating diplomacy very, very astutely? New York City is beginning to crack down on Airbnb. What does this mean for rents? What does it mean for property values? With me is Tom Lee, co-founder of Fundstrat and FS Insight, and also Donovan Andrews, our resident C-suite operator in tech and media. Oh, uh, well, let's see. You know, it's post-Labor Day. Um, S&P's up 16% year to date. August was a very tough month. Um, especially the first half. And now we're kind of in that final stretch, you know, September through December. And uh, there's a lot happening in investors' minds because, you know, one, so many investors never expected the market to be up 17%, you know, year to date. So there is... A lot of naysayers out there. Yeah, and so they have to catch up. Um, But at the same time that they're going to catch up is, you know, they have to deal with this uncertainty of like, well, historically September's tough and boy, you know, the first three days have been bad. I mean, S&P is down 1% for the month. I mean, I'd say kind of the month is looking like a write-off. It might just be a down month. And then October scares people. Cause that's when, right. and then there's a potential UAW strike and the government shutdown and oils up. So I think there's plenty to worry about. Um, so I think it's going to keep this market really tough. It's been tough for investors because uh, it's been hard to explain why markets do what they do, but I guess I'm still kind of sticking with the case that we'll be strong into year end. I do think maybe September is going to be tougher overall, though. Right. So, do you think the markets? Do you think market has still has legs through the end of the year? Is that be, how much of that is because of people are still sort of underweight uh, the market, so they're still sort of chasing that needs to happen maybe by the end of the year, or are there some other factors you think that's going to drive the markets back up? You know, that, I mean, that's a factor. Um, the reason I think that's a factor is like positioning matters when, when people are indecisive and, you know, people are indecisive right now because we don't really know what's like, someone could tell you that we're going to have a recession. Someone could tell you it's a soft landing, but all the data looks the same. You know, you won't really know until you get closer to exiting this year that you'll know which view prevails. I mean, our view is still that it's not a recession, but that means you're positioned very differently, right? Because between now and your end, if you think it's a recession, you're defensive and you're shorting stocks. But if it's a soft landing, that means the Fed is done and you're going to have to own stocks. So the big swing is going to be positioning, Chi, and I think most people think it's a recession. But at the same time, we've seen the latest indicators seem that point that the economy possibly could be accelerating, right? I mean, we talked this morning about the, I guess it was the, um, was it the Atlanta Fed 
anticipating maybe over 5% annualized growth in the third quarter, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, look, I think the economy's held up great. Um, stock market's held up pretty well and tech's held up well. So those things are important. But I guess people can't escape the feeling that, hey, how sticky is inflation? You know, and and, and that's going to keep people sidelined. So, yeah. So, I, you know, it's, I think markets are caught in a little bit of a tricky spot, you know, because of that, Shane. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, sort of what's been, what I've been monitoring is I think the market is about to have a, a real test. Um, we're talking really the IPO market. So we have sort of three big IPOs that are sort of teed up um, as soon as really next week. Um, these are big, well-established names, many of which are household names for both te um, technology, technology experts as well as actually households. I'm talking Arm and Instacart. A um, number of these companies have been around, Arm has been around, established since 1990, right? I mean, this is a, kind of their second time going public after they were privatized. Um, the key thing is that these three of these, all three, all three of these three companies are coming in at, at a pretty sharp valuation cut relative to their last round. Uh, we're talking Arm coming in probably at about $50 billion, looking to raise $5 billion, but they were just valued by SoftBank at, you know, 70 six billion right so that's actually a pretty big haircut right in a, in a short amount of time and i think that's all very positive for investors um and the other point thing i would point out is that all three companies are profitable so it's very unlike um sort of the, the nature of the companies that were listed um kind of when the market was open really two years ago so well-established profitable companies many of which are sort of household names so I think it's going to be so if these, if these companies list and go up, um, you know, positively, I think it's going to be a very, very good um, sign that the whole tech market and the VC market was beginning to thaw. So remember the LP. So the VC market's been sort of um, kind of frozen, right? Investors have not been able to sort of recoup their profits via distributions because there's been a lack of IPOs. So now if LPs get their money back, they can kind of recycle that back into, um, you know, venture funds. And then a venture funds can ultimately recycle that back into one of the most promising um, startups, right? So I think, you know, we're at, we're probably at a very important stage where the market can open up again, which clearly would be, you know, a win-win, I think, for innovation. Uh, and I think ultimately for investors, as I do think that allocating capital sort of this year and next year, maybe the year after, I'll give more where you are in the tech super cycle. Um, valuations are super attractive and I still think we're getting some very innovative companies. So I, that's what I've been monitoring and I think a lot of investors are should be focused on that. Got it. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'd say for sure, IPOs opening up is actually fundamentally good for the stock market because if you're a hedge fund and you want to have exposure to tech i mean you can buy the big seven or you can try to participate through an ipo and also get hopefully that ipo premium you know the pop that follows right and uh, these are new ideas and they can champion and <clears throat> so it does like you say it does sort of prime the ecosystem for not only that's venture to public process, but also for uh, people to kind of add risk. So it would be good to see. 
Yeah, and and the bankers and the companies through the credit are sort of trying to bulletproof um, <clears throat> the deals, right? I mean, so yeah, Arm has brought in twenty eight bankers, which you know some would argue is that sort of a um, a sign of strength or weakness, right? It's probably a, a little bit more, a little bit of both. I mean, Arm has been around for a long time; they have you know certain relationships they need they need to feed, but these bankers have pulled in significant amount of cornerstones, right? So in ARM alone, this is super interesting. So you have guys that are coming in for almost $700 million worth of stock at the IPO are NVIDIA, Google, Apple, TSMC, and Samsung, right? So basically all of your major customers are coming in to support them, right? And similarly for Instacart, uh, PepsiCo um, is coming in for $175 million convertible in you know, a, a, a concurrently with the IPO. So again, these companies and bankers are really trying to kind of take de-risk these these offerings. So that also that also should um you know vote very well for uh you know performance. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, those are pretty like when you get those are going to be seen as smart money, smart industry money, right? So I mean it's a real validation too. Yeah, exactly. I mean when I was a banker and getting cornerstones um, you know, anchor orders, you know, that was really, really important. If you can get it from, from your customers, that's a huge validation of your business. Right. Yeah. Um, so Donna. Wait, but oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Donna. So what so what does this mean for us as we go into, you know, as we go into the new year and we go into the new year, so we have a few IPOs. There's still like some positivity around um around the economy. Like yeah, you know, what's what's the prediction around this, Tom? Like, or just we're just not. I don't even know if we need a prediction. But what are the, the general thoughts as we go into this? Right, like COVID's coming back in a weird way. Um, you know, the the Ukraine Russia war didn't expand. It, it wasn't. It, it didn't become as as bad as it could have been. <clears throat> right. So I think we have a lot of good signals, but we obviously we have some some weird things hanging over us. So what what does this all mean? Uh, well, I mean, I don't have an, I don't have any insights how these all play out because that would be the most important thing. Um, but I guess I'd say, you know, we're we're facing a wall of worries into the end of the year, which is fine. I mean, that's kind of what you always want. Um, how many of these things really derail the economy? Not too many. I mean, even the UAW strike by itself isn't that much of an outlier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not it's not like a big enough deal. But, you know, you just don't want a lot. You just what it, it's setting up. for. I mean, the thing I guess I'd be nervous about is, you know, is this setting up for a shock? Like, you don't want this all to collide at once, like a strike along with an oil spike. And all of a sudden, you know. People are talking about like this is gonna push us over the edge, you know. Um, so, uh, okay, so you're saying like there's a black swan event that markets that we're not focused on. That could, that could I hope it doesn't happen. Surprise. I'm just saying like that that Donna, like what you're describing is like when bad things are around, you just don't want something bad to happen. I don't expect that to happen, but yeah. hey, it could. I mean. You know, but then, but then again, on the flip side, things could get better. I mean, China could come out of this a little better, and mm -hmm. uh, maybe we see 
some, you know, oil prices cool because for something and that would be better. And if interest rates fall, that'd be better. And if inflation falls, so a lot could go right too, but it, we're in an environment where I can just say investors are nervous. I'm less nervous than investors. That's why I'm constructive, but I understand why people are nervous. But it's, it's right because when you look at it, like so, we were poised for so many bad things to get really bad, and it didn't happen. Yeah, right. Jobs, yeah. I mean, jobs, jobs held up. Everything. You know, wage expansion has come down a bit, but still kind of okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So obviously, the housing market's held up. It's almost. Uh, that's mostly like a soft. That looks like a soft landing. It's, it, look, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, so maybe Joe Biden pulled it off. <laughs> I think Bidenomics has probably worked. Maybe. Yeah. I think it's worked. And, you know, people have to give him this, you know, they have to give him his props for that because he pulled it, he pulled it off, right? Because things, things could, things were looking real bleak when we started this. Yeah, that's true. He's definitely had a he's had a lot of uh, legislation, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think um, I know this is a topic that Donna you you brought up you know, to us um, individually. What's going on with India? Right. So you have India, but two weeks ago they landed their lunar, um you know, machine or a device, I'm sorry, apparatus on the southern part of the moon, which has mm-hmm. never really been done before, right? The week before Russia tries and fails, yeah. right? Right. So in India, I mean, I think their, their version of NASA, their budget is like, I don't know, 10, tens of millions of dollars versus tens of billions, obviously, you know, for NASA, but they did it. So what do you make of that, Donna? Yeah, I think the, what their budget was... Something like one point one point five, just like with one and a half billion dollars, something like that. It's crazy. Um, look, a lot of it is I think that when you build these systems sometimes um from scratch, um in this era, you don't have to you don't bring a lot of legacy issues with you, right? Like I would imagine NASA brings a whole bunch of like technology and a platform that's probably been supporting for the last 30, 40 years. So I get that and just overall cost. Um, but at the same time, you have to give them props to the Indians in terms of like what they've been able to accomplish in the last, um, you know, not just the life of the space program, but just let's say in the last several years under, mm-hmm. you know, under, you know, new, new leadership. I think they have some, a bunch of problems around human rights, but I think all countries do, especially here in the U.S., we have our own version of that. But they've been able to grow the population, um, expand um the average life expectancy. Um, we have more people being educated, more people learning English. Uh, so that's all those numbers are moving up and to the right. Uh, so healthcare, education, diplomacy, uh, I think they're in a good place in terms of that being in that nexus of kind of like uh, being the uh, you know the most sought after, most suited country. Ally. Yep. Yeah. Right. Everyone. Yeah, they're definitely in the sweet spot. Right. Yeah, everyone's on one. Everyone wants on their side: China, Russia, the U.S. So, and I think they're playing that really well. Yeah, the diplomacy has been um, super astute, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, they, I mean, Modi was just at a state dinner, right, just a couple months ago. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a super big deal. So they're playing all sides here. 
but I guess the question is, you know, if something happens geopolitically, you know, what, you know, what, what camp are they going to fall in, right? I mean, ultimately, they need oil. Same thing as China, right? But, you know, China and India are not especially, you know, friendly. I mean, they almost had a conflict really just a couple of years ago over the border, mm-hmm. right? So we'll see. And, you know, in, in, in India, you know, they, they banned a lot of Chinese apps, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're also trying to create their own domestic uh, ecosystem for technology. Yeah, but you know, back to your question, Chi, in terms of you said that if something happens in the world, what side are they? What side do they choose? What side will they be on? I, I think what we're seeing in this new multipolar world is that I don't, I don't think you have to necessarily choose a side. I think we're just going to see countries that say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. And what's best for me is to do this thing. And if that thing is trade or if that thing is uh, is additional diplomacy and alignment in one direction or the other, um, they'll do that thing that is very specifically beneficial to them. And I think we'll probably see more and more of that as we go forward. Right. right so the Switzerland approach. Yeah. Um, okay. So final topic, Donovan, one close to your heart, Airbnb, New York City, cracking on an Airbnb. You know, it's going to take away you know, demand for apartments. What's your take? Well, remember years ago, it's like two two New York City um, elections ago, two New York elections ago, there's that guy who ran on the platform, the rent is too damn high. Remember? Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll put it in the video. Or you know, we'll put it and then on the podcast notes. But that's, <laughs> I guess it wasn't that's fixed. <laughs> What's that? I guess it wasn't fixed. It was never fixed. The rent's too damn high. So I just think that, you know, what's happening here in New York, and I think everyone's feeling it, you know, neighborhood after neighborhood. You know, growing, you know, we both grew up here. There are people living in parts of Brooklyn and Queens that no one lived in before, right? No one lived in different in parts of like Sunset Park, right? Like, how <laughs> you go out there, like gourmet restaurants, you go out to Crown Heights, or, like French restaurants. So, Everyone's pushing out to all these different parts of New-, of New York City and Brooklyn and Queens and everywhere and beyond Staten Island, and the rent just keeps going up because you just don't have enough capacity, right? So, so we don't have enough supply for people to live a life, and definitely not enough for people to live in the neighborhood where they grew up, right? In terms of like some of the working class neighborhoods in New York. So when you look at Airbnb, um, I think study after study has shown that when Airbnb moves into a city or a town, um, the price points move up, right? So rent goes up and um, and purchase prices move up. Mm-hmm. Some, right, so something has to be done around that because then just overall living expenses, it just means that people won't be able to to stay where, either stay in the place where they were born or stay in the place where they grew up or be in a place where they desire. Because it's just you know the price points are just getting too it's just too too heavy now it's too high. Why is the city? Get, I mean, why is the city starting to crack down now? I mean, is there a trigger? Well, I think we have this whole wave of, of of migrants that are here now, right? And I think there's a challenge. The challenges in terms of being figure, being able to figure out what we are going to do with some of these folks. Oh, so even more of a housing shortage. Yeah. What's that? So even more of a housing shortage. More of a housing shortage because it's a lot of these folks are going to come here. Um, they're going to be and and stay right. So some of them have relatives in other parts of the country and they'll maybe go there. But most people will will, will end up opting to stay in New York City, right? So um, with that, um, we already have 
rent that is out of control. So now you're going to have more people coming online. So we have to figure this out in terms of how we create more housing. And I just don't think that converting commercial building in, buildings in Midtown is going to be the answer for everyone. Right, and this has nationwide implications as well, right? Oh. I, mean, I, think, I, think a lot, I think a lot of cities are cracking down on Airbnb, right? Everyone's trying to figure it out. Everyone's trying to figure it out. I think that we we, we got to figure out how to do something because it's just not this is not working. We're not going to be able to build house, homes fast enough um, around the country. Right. All right. Well, uh, that that's uh, maybe a ticket offline here. Any last words of wisdom, Tom Lee? Uh yes. I'd say, um, and I'm just being anecdotal. I think people are reaching peak nervousness nervousness today or tomorrow so i i don't think the rest of the month's a write-off but it's you know people are nervous that uh you nervous so wait that is very nervous he's always nervous <laughs> so people are nervous tom what's right. that mean what 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 do people usually how you expect people to behave when they get nervous in the markets yeah usually um you want to buy when everyone's nervous because that means they've already taken action to take money out of the market. And it's kind of the better, it's a better setup to buy when people are nervous. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Dada, you oh. nervous? So, no, now I'm just going to buy. I, uh, now I know what a channel my nervous energy just a buyer. By hand over fist. <laughs> That's it. Well, I guess for me, I mean, it's, you know, kids started school today. So summer is officially over. We're nice. at the sort of the second week of the U.S. Open, which you guys know I've been following very closely. Uh, Tom was there. And a uh, couple of observations. A, it is super, super hot in under that, you know, Arthur Ashe. It's unbelievably hot. There's no, there's no wind. There's no breeze. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine these players you know, playing, I mean, ridiculous. I know. Right. I was getting a low grade headache. I was, you know, I was there Monday and I, I Tom like got hit stroke. Tom got his stroke. Yeah. I got the U S open stroke the whole time. <laughs> uh, the second thing is I did smell pot. So, you know, uh, the Greek player, um, you know, she's playing a court 17, which is at the end. They're like, yeah, I, I smell pot. And of course, pot is actually not allowed in anywhere in the, uh, the facility or even in the park. And it turns out it's actually the workers smoking weed. So, and I and I can validate this. I saw I saw these workers just smoking weed, and now we know where it comes from. So uh, now the U.S. Open will be known for a couple of things. Perhaps the rise of Ben Shelton, who is a linebacker impersonating as a tennis player, as a phenomenal tennis player, 150 miles an hour serve, and widespread weed smells. I think you just snitched on the workers, Chief. I think you just No, the New York Times did actually. They 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 did an investigation. They said it's actually the workers. So with that, guys, thanks for your time and thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Take care. Thanks. See ya.